We've been working on Create the Village for some time. Both the design and production of this podcast predated the COVID-19 crisis. However, we decided to push pause for the moment on the original show design so that we could launch with this three-part series. We're conducting these interviews by phone because we're honoring the social distancing protocols. I hope you are too. I am Egbert Perry, and this is Create the Village. According to the U.S. Department of Labor, the U.S. economy lost more than 700,000 jobs in March, and the unemployment rate jumped to 4.4%. It is rumored that major banks, inundated with requests, have stopped taking applications for the Paycheck Protection Program, loans designed to help small businesses. With due apologies to Winston Churchill, we are at the beginning of the beginning. My name is Egbert Perry, and I'm the founder and CEO of The Integral Group, and this is Create the Village, a podcast that provides a platform where leaders from the private, public, and nonprofit sectors come together to speak candidly about the challenges facing American cities to voice their ideas, and to provide examples of innovative and sustainable initiatives that are working in American cities. In part one, I talk with Mark Calabria, the director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, an independent federal agency that oversees Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the federal home loan banks. Calabria's agency recently announced new policies that provide eviction suspension relief for renters in multifamily properties. In part two, I'll be joined by Deidre Woolard, an editor at Million Acres, a division of Motley Fool. She has researched and written about the sometimes disconnected state-by-state responses to COVID-19 and the impact on renters. And in part three, I will speak with David Dworkin, the president of the National Housing Conference, who says we would benefit greatly by looking back at how the federal government used housing production in the early 1930s as a strategy to attack the Great Depression. Before we hear from Mark Calabria, let me share a little context and background for the conversation. Fannie Mae is a $3.2 trillion mortgage giant, and in terms of assets, It's the largest financial institution in the United States. I was named to the board in 2008 and served as chairman of the board from 2014 through 2018 when my term expired. Director Calabria oversees the Federal Housing Finance Agency, an independent federal agency created following the Great Recession of 2008. As noted, his agency oversees both Fannie and Freddie Mac. During the Great Recession of 2008, and out of necessity, both Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac adopted policies that raised concerns to some about the potential for homeowners to, in effect, just walk away from their mortgages with little or no consequence, something known as moral hazard. In my conversation with the director, I was interested in learning how his new policies for Fannie and Freddie would provide the much-needed relief to renters while protecting us all against what some may see 
as creating a new moral hazard more than a decade later. Here's the conversation. So, Mark, um, you know, every, everyone associates the GSEs with single-family mortgage sector mainly and either do not realize or sometimes they just simply forget the critical role played by FHFA and its regulated enterprises in the rental housing space. So I certainly, as a multifamily developer by background, I was glad to see your recent announcement, which uh, complements other earlier moves that you made in the single family sector. So my question is a little bit along the lines of when I think about uh, the last crash, one of the big concerns was this moral hazard when you know people knew that there was an effort to try and work out their mortgages and there were concerns around, well, maybe I should just let it go south so that I would get my mortgage modified and so on. How do you avoid moral hazard kinds of issues inside of what you're doing on the, in the rental housing space? Uh, and let me just say two last things. I noticed that the press release had in the section, it indicated that eligibility includes enterprise-backed performing multifamily mortgages negatively affected by the corona national emergency, coronavirus national emergency. So how do you determine what was performing and what negative, negatively affected looks like so that it's not a free-for-all? No, thank you, Edgar. That, that's, that's several great questions, so let me try to start pulling those out. And first, let me emphasize where you, where you started, which is, you know, Fannie and Freddie do have a very large role in the multifamily segment. And, and of course, their market share in multifamily is fairly similar to their market share uh, in single family, and they're both kind of uh, in, in the multifamily space combined about 40% of that market. Um, you know, it's fairly sizable. They are the largest players, single largest players in that market. Uh, so they do play a very big role in that market. Uh, but this is different. I mean, we've done a number of forbearance programs over the years, and the single family program really was, with a couple of changes, but at its core, was built off what Fannie and Freddie have done in disasters in the past. And this has been a little different, and of course this crisis is a bit different. Uh, the top line uh, issue, let's talk about the moral hazard a little bit. Well, the plus is so far, and, and again, I, I underline so far because things could change the more this goes on, we've not seen uh, declines in property prices. And so a lot of the moral hazard, and you may remember particularly on the single-family side early in, in the Great Recession. There were calls for things like principal reduction and a lot of the so-called strategic default on single-family uh, borrowers were instances where somebody was deeply underwater. So, you know, most of the time in the single-family market, if a borrower has equity, particularly substantial equity, they rarely are going to walk away. Um, and, and, and they're really going really gonna to try to take advantage uh, of some sort of modification program. Uh, it's the same, uh, certainly similar um, circumstances, uh, you know, on the multifamily side. And we have seen, you know, I guess that my understanding is for both me and Freddie on the single family book, for instance, that less than 1% of their book is actually mortgages that are underwater. So you don't have these large amount of mortgages underwater. One of the reasons that the multifamily book performed better 
during the Great Recession than the single-family book was because the much greater amount of equity uh, on loan, because we saw a similar boom and bust in multifamily property values as we did in single-family, and you saw a lot less delinquency um, because of the better underwriting in the multifamily book. And so let's observe that we at least start from a position today where prices are not yet falling, and, and I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know that anybody in the market knows what prices are going to do next month. We, all we have is, uh, you know, the rearview mirror data, and the rearview mirror data was a very strong uh, first quarter in the housing market up until the virus hit. Um, if we get through this relatively quickly in two or three months uh, and are on the upside and the markets come back, and I think everybody's trying to look at that value there, then I think the moral hazard on both the single family and the multifamily programs will be minimized. Um, because again, most of these properties overwhelmingly continue to have positive equity. Uh, you know, the question of more hazard in terms of trying to take advantage of a timeout, well, you, of course you could say with interest rates near zero, um, even were we to give you a timeout, you know, we're essentially, the cost of lending this, in this environment is incredibly low. So I would say the opportunity cost of taking advantage of that's not very high for the borrower and the opportunity cost of, of giving that forbearance for Fannie and Freddie is quite low. But another factor, this is particularly important, remember, of course, the basic that Fannie and Freddie, our reach is through the mortgage. So while we have a relationship with a homeowner because they have a mortgage, we don't have the same relationship with the renter. And so the way the, the primary difference, and, and this is a crucial difference between the multifamily forbearance and the single-family forbearance, is the landlord must request the forbearance. And the landlord can request the forbearance because tenants are not able to pay rent. And, and that's the hardship. And so, of course, it is forbearance. The landlord will have to pay it back. And I really want to underline the landlord, you know, the mortgagee will have to pay back any forbearance regardless of whether the tenant's paid rent or not. So certainly there's an incentive here on the part of the landlord to say, okay, if I want to enter my property into forbearance so that I can give my tenants a break, you're really only going to see that overwhelmingly done if the landlord believes that the tenants are going to pay them back because otherwise eventually that will come, come out of their pocket. Uh, it's also, yeah. Well, I was going to, just on that point, I would assume that that means you really are banking. I'm trying to get to the heart of the thinking on this. So you're banking on it being a short-term issue or you may are. be back to revisiting whether putting it all on the landlord is where it ultimately ends up, right? That, that, and, that's a, and that's a great point. So um, we are banking on, or rather we've designed our current set of programs for what we think will be two to three months of forbearance. If we are in a longer situation, which again, none of us really know how long this is going to go on. I, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist. You know, I, I do have a PhD in economics. Not that that uh, makes me qualified to speak much on the medical side, but we'll say, you know, there's a lot of evidence for a scenario A where this is, you know, we're on the other side of the bell curve in six to eight weeks, but there's certainly significant evidence to believe it goes on longer. And so we're certainly dealing with the uncertainty of not knowing, you know, how this is really going to play out and how long it's going to be. And you certainly could see um, rolling outbreaks where perhaps in two weeks in New York, New York 
uh, we're through the worst of it, but then you start to see other parts of the country where they start to experience similar. So we certainly have to be able to be flexible um, within our limitations. So part of the reason why we have not rolled out broader, um, you know, part of the reason we haven't moved from forbearance to forgiveness uh, is certainly uh, because Fannie and Freddie simply don't have the resources. Uh, you know, if Congress wants to decide uh, to appropriate large amounts of money uh, and to forgive mortgages or to pay rent, that, that's certainly the, the, the uh, choice of Congress. And certainly in the recent Re Relief Act, there was considerable amount of money provided for some housing assistance, certainly not enough to pay everybody's rent, but enough to help some renters. Uh, and so there is some assistance that's there from HUD um, through the appropriate appropriations in the relief bill. But the fact is, is for Fannie and Freddie, you know, we have enough liquidity and stability at Fannie and Freddie to get us through a two to three month environment. If we're beyond that, um, then, you know, the question, the question is less about, you know, Fannie and Freddie saving others and more about saving Fannie and Freddie. So how did you define then what are the metrics to determine negatively affected by um, the crisis? In other words, is that a level of delinquency or what? What is it that would drive a definition to say this property does qualify because it was performing, but now here is what's happened since the crisis? Great, great, great question. And because we are studying, because this multifamily forbearance renter assistance program, is this is the first time this has been done. So unlike on the single family program where we really could just take what's been done in, the, in natural disasters and modify it slightly. This is really a model built from scratch, and because there are significant differences between this and the single-family side, there are a number of things that need to be done differently. So, A, I want to say there are a number of details that we're still putting in place that will be uh, given to servicers over the next couple of days so that we can get some guidance out there. Um, but, A, I want to emphasize, and this does tie back to the more housing question to some degree, so you have to be performing, and we're in the process of defining how far that goes back. So certainly if the loan has been, you know, even 30 days delinquent over, say, the last year, it's, it's not going to be eligible. So in part of what we're seeing on the single-family side that gives me some hope about the sustainability of this is the overwhelming majority of borrowers seeking forbearance on the single-family side are borrowers who've never missed a payment and who have good credit. And so they clearly, you know, you you could think about the analogy when we were talking multifamily for a second, but if you're a single family borrower and you've got you know you've worked hard to get a 780 FICO score, you're proud of that, you pay your bills, um, you've got equity in the home. I can't imagine that you're just going to say after three months of forbearance, well, whatever, you know, I'm not going that 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 to me is just not going to be the scenario. So 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 a we're making sure that. Properties that have a history of going in and out of delinquent. So, and of course, mo even on the multifamily, most properties that go 30-day delinquent do cure. But we are, if, if you've been one of these properties that, you know, you occasionally hit bumps on the road over the years and you're in and out of delinquency, but you never you never truly go um, uh, seriously delinquent, well, that's still going to be something that's, that's not allowed within a certain window, and we're in the process of defining that window. So one way of dealing with the moral hazard is, you know, has this been a solid performing loan? Um, another way of dealing with is, I think, as you as you know, the uh, servicers and lenders on the multifamily side for Fannie and Freddie are a much more concentrated group. 
uh, you know, the dust lenders with Fannie and with Fannie, for instance, um, it's almost a select group, if you will. And there's a high incentive to want to be in that circle of lenders. And so where I'm going with this, of course, is those lenders have a very high incentive to make sure that the loans ultimately perform. So part of this is aligning the incentives of the landlord and aligning the incentives uh, of the servicers. And then let's get to the question that you, you started with. Well, what makes you eligible? Well, the hardship has to be because, hey, Mark, again, just, just before yes. you do that, could you say, so that's, I understand, in the DUST program, you've got the lenders there, and there's a, an immediate um, risk sharing between Fannie and yep. the lenders. What is, are you seeing a difference between Fannie and Freddie in terms of what, what the portfolio is looking like and what that may mean? Are you seeing, is it too early to? I, I would, it's too early. I mean, you know, and, and again, keep in mind, we're, we're on the, you know, we're just into April. Um, obviously, the virus did not really hit and become a, a real economic issue until after essentially March payments have been made. So uh, we'll learn a lot as, um, as the next couple of days unfold yeah. about, yeah, exactly. And so, um, but again, let me, let me mention a couple of characteristics of this and that. You, the mortgagee landlord, to enter into this, you have to commit not to um, evict anybody for non-payment of rent. You can still evict for other reasons. You know, obviously, if you've got somebody who's destroying the unit, who's a nuisance, who, who, who is a trouble to the property, uh, you can evict for those reasons, for normal reasons, but you can't evict for non-payment of rent. Um, and so the landlord is, you are giving something up here that's quite serious, which is you are giving up some control over your tenants. Um, and so you, you're giving and you're getting. That, that is the biggest it's, moral hazard, right? Exactly. And, yeah. and, and, and while we have not been able to set up um, yet, because we've just rolled this out, a way for tenants to complain, I have a very strong certainty that if you, landlord mortgagee, were to um, were to essentially take forbearance and then try to evict people um, for non-payment of rent, we would hear about it. I'm not certain of that. <laughs> I can, um, I can and, attest to this with certainty that that would be the case. <laughs> so, you know, you are, it, you know, it, 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 and of course there are going to be some tenants that, you know, you, you're going to have tenants that fall in a gray area where they didn't pay for, uh, for hardship by, by the virus, but there are other reasons that they may be a nuisance um, there are other reasons they may be destructive, and you're going to have to, and you give, and you're going to give up because those tenants are going to argue with you over why they're being evicted. And so I do think you, as a landlord, are giving up a fair amount of flexibility, flexibility in managing your tenants to be part of this. So, again, I would say, um, you know, we're very early in on this. We've had some inquiries. Um, you haven't seen the level of ramp up take up that we've seen on the single family side, but again, we're still getting numbers from Fannie and Freddie on this. Um, and so I expect that again, this is meant to be, and, and again, I should also, I, I think the likely take up will be smaller lenders to, I mean, smaller properties rather where, you know, maybe you've got uh, a, a 20, 30 units and you've got a handful of, um, tenants you can't pay, you know, my suspicion is the bigger properties will probably be able to absorb, you know, if you've got a property with you know, 200 tenants and you've got three that aren't paying rent um, because of the virus, the, 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 pro, 
the process of this is just not going to be that attractive yeah. to you in my in my in my sense. So it's really going to probably be smaller properties, disproportionate. And of course, on the on the single family side, we're doing this as you recall. About a third of renters live in single family right. units, of course, including you know townhouses and duplexes and such. So we're being able to directly do that for those landlords. So we're still going to see what the take up is. Um, but again, the landlord is going to have to state that, you know, here are the number of tenants I have that aren't paying because of the virus. We're not making them document that. So if a tenant, but again, I'm certain that the tenants will let us know if they're not having that passed along. So, but again, it's a big question. <laughs> they, they will. And some of this will really be how long this goes on. I mean, again, I think for I think the reality is is that most landlords, if they think this is a month or two or three event, will probably either eat the non-payment of rent, or will work out some sort of individualized repayment with the tenant. Ian, but we'll see. I mean, this is meant to be an option for instances where that won't work. But but again, we're in we're we're somewhat in uncharted territory. I'd be the first to say that. Um, we also know that a significant percentage of um, employees impacted by this. I mean, we just saw the unemployment claims off the chart. A very large, probably about half of the people who are losing their jobs now are renters. You know, you're talking about people that are you know maybe service industry exactly. So this is going to be a big impact on, 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 on landlords, on renters, and we're making sure that we have additional options, of course, again, because our only reach through is because of the mortgage. We're a little limited in what we could do via others. Um, but again, I know that um, Congress is doing this, and of course, about 10% or so of the rental stock is HUD-assisted in one way or another, whether it's a voucher or public housing. And so HUD has set up a, a, a number of programs where they're trying to make sure it work with public housing authorities. And, and again, those are some of the tenants that would be most at risk. Um, but again, we're working with this. And of course, um, FHA has a large number of multifamily properties too. And they haven't quite rolled out something, but I know they're working on something. So Mark, we really, th yeah. I'm going to do two quick, quick questions and, and, sure. and I'll be done. I, I appreciate and respect the time you're putting in here. So. One, if I assume you have not yet forecasted, well, if it did end up being a prolonged exercise and it's 90 days, 120 days of hemorrhaging of any kind, have you thought about what that program would look like or is that just a matter of at that point you're introducing some form of forgiveness or so but still hoping that the large properties will still consider it a short window. What, is, what does that look like, or what bullets do you have left to fire? Well, I would say probably, you know, maybe to define myself separately from Washington in general, yeah, uh, sure. I would say that a longer period beyond 90 days, we at FHFA in, in regulating Fannie and Freddie will, will be very short of bullets at that point. Uh -huh. And I do think that if this is a plus 90 day plus event, there's really going to have to be con additional congressional action. And of course, there is a fourth round of um, relief being talked about. I, I, you know, again, Congress has said it's going to be out till April 20th at, at the, so I don't think you're going to see um, 
another relief bill for at least a month if that's, but if it does look like we're in a 90-day period, uh, I think you may see, and, and again, I think the way Congress will probably approach this is to try to give some relief directly to renters um, and those who are experiencing hardships. So uh, again, one of the reasons we've tried to make this relatively tailored is because, you know, again, Fannie and Freddie are still a conservatorship, which I'll remind everybody is essentially bankruptcy. Our resources are limited. Uh, and we'll, if this goes beyond 90, 120 days, we will be having to look elsewhere. Well, I will tell you, when I was recruited to the board in December of 08, I was asked, I was told, please look at this as public service. You must be doing it for 18 months, and then it will be all over. And it's hard to believe it's 12 years later. <laughs> uh, agreed. was never meant to be this long. Right. Last question. Uh, homeowners, and you, you sort of alluded to it, so on your policies um, for homeowners, what are sort of the one or two things that drove those policies as, this, as separate from um, the, the renters? Well, A, we have given a number of forbearance programs to natural disasters and felt it was appropriate in this instance. And, and again, we think it's good for the borrower. We think it's good for Fannie and Freddie. Uh, and the big difference here is that, which is similar to the multifamily, but different from previous rounds of forbearance, is there's just such an important public health component to this. You don't want to put people out of their houses and potentially be exposed during this environment. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to evict anybody and have to have uh, the sheriff and come through and get exposed. So, if we as a government in Washington are trying to tell people to shelter in place, essentially, then we needed a set of mortgage policies that was consistent with that. Uh, and, and that's really what this, the public health concern of this is really the primary driver, at least the lens I'm looking through this with. Fantastic. Well, Mark, this is very, very helpful, very insightful. Uh, appreciate it. I, for one, have a good lens through which I look to understand the importance of the work that you do in help in the financial system and the national and global economic system. So I absolutely appreciate your contribution and thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. I'll be well. Create the Village is produced by Rick White, directed and edited by Brennan Robison. Create the Village is a production of The Integral Group, LLC. Copyright The Integral Group, 2020.